Osiris. Hi, this is Maggie Rose, and you're listening to Salute the Songbird on Osiris Media. I started this podcast to showcase women in music who inspire me and who I want folks everywhere to know about. My guests are icons in contemporary music, independent artists, studio musicians, hit songwriters, and power players behind the scenes. All of them challenging the status quo, respecting the hustle, and leading the way for women following in their footsteps. Salute the Songbird is a platform for women in music to share their stories and let their voices be heard. And everyone has a seat at the table. Welcome. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Salute the Songbird. And boy, do we have a special episode for you. Because this was the first and only of season one that we were able to capture in front of a live audience. It was at 3rd and Lindsley in Nashville, one of my favorite venues, on Valentine's Day of 2021. And the idea of capturing an interview in front of a live audience was a concept that was completely unfathomable only a few months ago. So the experience was an absolute trip. And my guest made it even more enjoyable. Of course, I'm talking about Elizabeth Cook. That evening, I played a set after our conversation, and all of this was broadcast on Lightning 100, which is one of my favorite stations here in Nashville. Super supportive of artists like myself and has introduced me to a lot of my favorite artists. And then we also partnered with Nugs.net to stream the event as well. So if you tuned in, thank you so much. But if you didn't, you'll still get to catch my incredible conversation with Elizabeth Cook, who is no stranger to speaking in front of a live audience. She's performed at the Opry over 400 times. She just released a stellar album called Aftermath. She has her own show on Outlaw Country and the Circle Network. So she's an entertainer, and she's been making music for decades. I think you'll understand how funny she is, how generous she is with her story, and you'll really enjoy the energy that the live crowd brought to this. I know that Elizabeth and I certainly did, This is one of our first returns to the stage after not being able to do that for so long. So there's a little extra something something that we both had as we were conducting this conversation with one another. I know you'll love it. I love Elizabeth Cook. Here she is on this episode of Salute the Songbird. Valentine's Day, everybody, and welcome to our first live episode of Salute the Songbird podcast, where I get to interview my favorite female artists from all <laughs> over the map from a genre standpoint, and uh, this young woman right next to me is Elizabeth Cook, and I got to meet her when we did a show with Marcus King mm-hmm. earlier this summer. Let me tell you a little bit about Elizabeth. She hails from Wildwood, Florida. She's played over 400 performances at the Grand Ole Opry. She has a show of her own on SiriusXM's Outlaw Country called Elizabeth Cook's Apron Strings, and she's a regular on Cartoon Network's called Country Classic Squidbillies. <laughs> very important. I'm so very, glad you noted that. It's very important. Right. You're very cool. Asterisk. Um, she also has her own show on the Circle Network. It's a fishing show called Upstream, where she gets to hang out with some of her favorite artists and teach them how to fish. I hope that you can show me how to do that soon. Among her fans, she can call John Hamm and David Letterman. 
And in fact, she was a performer on David Letterman's show and was one of the rare musicians who he actually invited to have a couch interview with her, which is really cool. It's just a testament to your charm. Uh, Rolling Stone calls her the hippie hillbilly queen of East Nashville. New York Times calls her a sharp and surprising country singer, and NPR calls her a treasure of the Americana singer-songwriter scene. And she's just released her seventh studio album called Aftermath, and it's absolutely stellar galactic country. So everybody, give Elizabeth Cook a warm welcome. Hi, hi. Thank you. Thank you for having me here on your special night. Thank you for taking the time to be a part of this. And, you know, you have the gift of gab, and you're so smart that I think you're actually going to help me out with my first live episode of this show. (laughs) But I want you to kind of give everybody a little bit of a background. You come from a musical family, a big family at that, too. Yeah. Yeah, I grew up um, in Wildwood, Florida, and my mother was a hillbilly singer from Charleston, West Virginia. And my daddy, um, he played upright bass in the prison band um, where he was doing time for running moonshine for the mob. So when he got out, he met my mom, and um, they were on up in years. They'd already had a whole bunch of kids and were living in a motel in Wildwood. And uh, so they got pregnant with me, and, and then I got added to the pack but uh, they had they had their honky tonk band that that uh, just kept going and um played around in the little the little bloody buckets mama used to call them around central bloody Florida. buckets bloody what, buckets what's that term originating like a, from like a greasy little center block cold dark dive jute joint uh-huh just nasty and you felt at home in these yeah, places? Yeah, but people, they always smell like cologne and pine saw mm-hmm. and old beer and like pew, throw up. Okay. But um, Rock and roll. It was, it was. I learned that. I, I, it took me a long time to get over the smell of sound check when I started mm-hmm. touring in my adult years. So I was like, ah, this smells like the Pine Grove Lounge. Man. Right. But did you always love music? Did you feel just by having proximity to music that that's what summoned you to pursue it yourself? I, you know, I did. I did um, love music. But the first music that I came to love wasn't necessarily the honky-tonk and hillbilly music that my mom and dad were playing, which would have been Hank Williams and Buck Owens and Tammy Wynette, George Jones, Loretta. Um, so they, they had a cool band. But they sent me to the neighborhood church as a free babysitter. <laughs> and it um, it was called the Sunset Park Church of God, mm-hmm. and it was a Pentecostal church where I learned that everybody I knew and loved was going to hell, uh-huh. and um, and they had a huge band and they threw down for like two hours before the preaching even started. And they just read a couple of scriptures and go eat fried chicken. And I, that's just how you know was, and so I loved that music. Right, but I tried to not do it. Um, I didn't associate those memories around the bars as a kid to a good feeling. So I went to Georgia Southern University, and I double majored in accounting and computer information systems, and then went to work for Price Waterhouse, and I I lasted um, 18 months at that gig. So 18 months was the expiration date before... Six years to go to school to figure out in 18 months that you don't want to do that no Right. (laughs) Your parents, what did they think about you deviating from the musical path that they had pursued themselves and going to college? They didn't really think much of it. Um, They never pressured me 
really one way or the other, but when I talk about one thing, they were excited, and when I talked about the other thing, they were just kind of confused. So they just, we were blue-collar people, and, you know, they didn't understand how you even go to college and what that meant, and, you know, nothing like that. My daddy had finished the sixth grade, so. And it was a bit of your association with that kind of environment, which is not what a lot of six-year-olds are existing among that made you kind of totally want to go see your own world. Yeah, I was going to be like where everybody like was nice and sober and, you know, organized and had a driver's license. and Sure. So I wanted to be with those people. It just seemed a little less chaotic, but it was a little too less chaotic. <laughs> so what was the catalyst that made you move after 18 months in accounting, you were studying, or you were working, and uh, what was the specific opportunity that presented itself? Um, I, I had met these guys at like songwriter hang, sort of like there are around this town, and um, they introduced me to this publisher, and, and he said, I need some demos done for, on some old catalog, and I need a real girl country singer, country singer, and it's like, do you think you would come in and do something like that, and I was like, um, yeah, sure, you know, I was in a business suit, so I went in on my lunch and um, sat around and jammed, and I played him a song I had written in college, and he offered me a publishing deal on the spot. What was the song called? It was so bad. It was called <laughs> Time on Her Hands, uh-huh. you know, it was very what you think, you know. It got you a publishing deal, I mean... Fine, right? right? So totally fine. It was totally fine. I really didn't have to get any better. It might have served me well if I hadn't. And this first couple years, even maybe months that you were in Nashville, you were writing demos, and that ended up being your first record, which was the Blue Record. Yeah. That got the attention of Atlantic mm-hmm. Records, and then you signed with them shortly after. I mean, this is a pretty expedited path that you had moving to Nashville. I've been here 13 years and yeah, it was yeah. a little tough to come by some of these things. So how did you theory, feel in this whirlwind of a I have a theory that there was so much money getting made mm-hmm. in Nashville in the 90s. Country stars had gone to big arenas. They were selling CDs for $25 a pop when they cost 25 cents to make. Mm. It was a gold rush. Right. And people got rich. So I think that I was a tax shelter um, for, um, for Atlantic. No, I don't think I was for Atlantic. They genuinely signed me. But it's very common for whoever signs you to get fired right after that. So that happened at Atlantic. Mm-hmm. And then there were mergers with Time Warner and AOL. And, and I found myself on Warner Brothers Records and completely disenfranchised from the label and did they understand you as an artist and you know I think I've heard you talk about this before where their idea was the only way was make a big budget music video get the tour buses you know there was no getting in a van and a sprinter and playing these theaters and and finding your voice and your first gig that you were offered to play was CMA Fest or something right. like that right totally that I mean that's, by fire. yeah that's what they wanted and they wanted to make this video that was going to cost $150,000. And I was like, man, if y'all just get me a van and let me ride around the country and play and not do it, I'll come back better. 
and we will have, we'll know what our single is probably. And, you know, I'll be ready for this. I didn't feel ready. I, I totally wasn't ready. Well, and throughout your career, you've had opportunity now to play shows and support yourself and open for Merle Haggard and going on the road with Nancy Griffith. And mm-hmm. you certainly found your voice. And I think if everyone checks out Aftermath, your most recent release, you'll hear that you're doing exactly what you want to do. <laughs> and it's just a revelation. But I'd love, since we're talking okay. about you playing and supporting yourself for you. And please introduce Wade over here. <laughs> oh, yeah. Thank you, Wade Sapp, for helping me tonight. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> All right, I've, I'm a little, but I'm just going to try and sing it kind of soft. Awesome, Elizabeth. <laughs> Thank you. We were talking backstage before we came out here, and we both just feel the euphoria of being able to play music again. But we have those butterflies of just like wash, rinse, and repeat. And we've kind of fallen out of that muscle memory thing, really? but you're just a consummate professional. You sound so 
amazing. This record is great. I had a dance party in my kitchen last night to that song in particular. <laughs> but we know we left off with your signing with Atlantic Records, and it was a bit of a tax write-off, how they were processing your artistry. You left that label, and you were in a bit of a flux of where you go from there. And I know that the Opry has been so instrumental in your career, and you've played there so many times, but Pete Fisher was one of the reasons that you got paired up with 30 Tigers and kind of got to take back the control of what you were doing with your music. What does the Opry mean to you? And how many times have you actually played there now? I lost count. Um, <laughs> well, when Daddy died, he was my stats man, you know, so he... My dad also keeps count. <laughs> he, he, knew the, he knew the count, but... Um, yeah, I mean, it was huge. It was everything. I don't even think I was signed to Atlantic yet when I got invited to play the Opry for the first time. And, um, well, I just was, I just wanted to get asked back so bad. That was my goal. It's like, all right, this is sweet, but um, I'd really, I need to do this. This is where I'm supposed to do this thing. And it was, uh, felt like, you know, a lot of pressure. And I, I was just scared to death. I don't remember most of it, but, um, then all those years later, and gosh, the experience of playing the Opry over 15 years now is I, so many of the old timers that were huge country stars. There is so communal backstage, especially when the Opry's at the Opry House. And it's just a, it is such a, fan, it truly is a family vibe. You walk in and there's Ricky Skaggs saying, hey, how are you, Elizabeth? You know, and, mm -hmm. um, they exchanged Christmas cards with my family. Like, you know, it was just, uh, it's been, it's just a wonderful experience. I've sat and had conversations alone with Loretta Lynn. No one else in earshot. Oh, my goodness. Um, just little moments like that. And I've got a pile of them, and I just can't believe it. Well, and of course, your show upstream is with Circle TV, which is in association with the Grand Ole Opry. So you're obviously so important to them. You're part of the family. I remember when Jimmy Capps passed away mm -hmm. and we got to go to the socially distanced funeral. It was of the young timers there. It was you and I. And mm -hmm. I think that um, that's what the Opry is doing such a good job of maintaining is this cross-section of country music being so much more than what you're hearing on Top 40 radio. Like You are country through and through your stories and the Grand Ole Opry is allowing us to get our music in that genre without having to play by the rules, which you and I might not be so good at doing all the time. <laughs> um, but I, I think Pete Fisher, who we both love, now he's with the Academy of Country Music, saw that in you, and he's been a big mentor to me as well. What we all need to do, everyone listening at home and everyone here, we need to write the Grand Ole Opry to make Elizabeth Cook a member, <laughs> finally, since you probably played there more than everybody else. <laughs> But they gave you a TV show, so I don't know if that's right. better. Yeah, I'm just laying low, man, you know. <laughs> so tell me, when we go through your discography, you have seven amazing records, but there was a gap of time where you didn't put anything out for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. What was going on? Yeah, I didn't put out a record. I put out a record called um, Welder in 2010, and then I didn't put out a record until 2016. So I had gone on the Late Show with David Letterman, and 
after that first appearance, I got a sitcom deal with CBS, okay. and that was as out there as it could be to me. That I just was like, what? And then they told me what the pay would be, and I love L.A., so I was like, cool, man. I'm going to get, like, all my family out of trailers. This is going to be great. And um, yeah, I, was, I was there for it, and so... That deal, as you can imagine, it's like Hollywood's like Nashville on acid. It's just way, way worse um, in terms of like the industry things that aren't great. Egos and oh my gosh, empty promises. Yes, and just ugh, that part's rough. But I have also met a lot of lovely people. But so I kind of lost a couple of years just hanging out at the Chateau Marmont with Johnny Knoxville taking Adderall, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and then. Um, and then my father died, and then my brother died, and my brother-in-law died, and my mother-in-law died, and my father-in-law died, and then, yeah, I got a divorce, and my sister got a divorce, and the farm burned down. This is emotional, like, over the top, just to be out in public like this. Right, <laughs> you know. absolutely. The fact that you got back on the horse after that and kept making music... Uh, yeah, I tried. I really did. Um, I had worked so hard, and I did not want to let go of what I had garnered so far, you know. And two, I mean, at that I, more than anything, I just love to write songs. It's a way that I process things. And so, you know, I had a lot of things to write mm-hmm. about, you know, just like Bones, that song's about wearing my parents' ashes. Mm-hmm. Would you mind sharing another song that maybe was a product of those experiences? Yeah, let's see. Oh, now okay. that I've made your throat tight. And- <laughs> I know. God. Y'all got any mod all? Or- <laughs> <laughs> Elizabeth Cook, everybody. <laughs> it's Valentine's Day. Thank you. You are very loved. I love y'all so much. I'm going to tune for you just a little bit. I want you to have a good experience. This is a brand new Fender guitar you were just It is. As well. This is my first night out on the town with the Acousta Sonic. You have a guitar that matches every outfit she wears, I think. For those of you listening, it's, well, that's not true, but she, it's Elizabeth, so she probably does. <laughs> yeah, I don't even, it's all chaos. Let's see. Okay. This is a song about the characters around the bar that my mom and daddy used to play. It's all true. Um, the best I know. Jesus. I promise I'm going to say I'm... All right. Screw tuning. All right. Standing by God to knew exactly how I felt and played George Jones' song. While in a bell matching shoes, polyester blues at the fine grove lounge from all you can drink booze. Bloody bucket of old brawls, man. Who had been clean shaven when they started at ten? When Stanley got going with mom by his side and daddy on base saying Charlie Pride Collider for some stand by your man A few you might hear from the band Nobody gets it like Tom 
Didn't take it in town. They knocked down, drag out every weekend. By Sunday, somebody's face was on the men and passed out cold on the concrete porch. Love sure is a bitch when you live scorched. Well, south and dirty county and a whole nother bar where the band would play since it wasn't very far there were more strange women even more smoke and filled by a legendary live old carol came in hot on Hennessy she left and wrapped her car around that live old tree I remember in the morning Mama dropping the phone I remember hushed words Hearing Daddy groan They had a pretty daughter Shy little Sherry We went and picked her up From the school library She was 16 And could sing so sweet And on a really good night She'd babysit After all that, it gets kind of cloudy, but two years later, she was Miss Sumter County, a small town trashy, tragic ghost. She feathered her hair and sang the rose. The whole cow palace knew just how she fell. And Stanley, by God, Terry wore Country music and hillbilly pain They make stories that don't hurt you Hold you like a chain <laughs> Thank you Just so good, and I, I can feel the emotion, and it's so hard to sing when you're in that place, but you just write so beautifully, and your bravery with how honest you are in your writing and sharing that with everybody and sharing your time with us tonight is just, oh, yeah. I love you. It's awesome. Yeah, I'm so happy to be Thank part of it, and congratulations. This. And the first time I laid eyes on her, I knew she was a star, and so... 
Well, Hooray. I'm so happy that we've been able to become friends, and that's what makes Nashville so wonderful, and one of the reasons that we wanted to start this podcast is because I moved here to be around other musicians who make me better, and you're definitely one of them. Oh, I you. want to finish uh, our conversation by talking about what we're so excited about, which is your most recent release, Aftermath, and kind of talk about how that came to be and the production behind it. And this cover for this album is absolutely incredible, too. You look like a space astronaut on Mars. <laughs> and there's a huge poster of it in East Nashville on the Purple Building, so you can get a life-size look at it. But let's talk about that record. Yeah, um, it all starts to run together sometimes. But, um, you know, I made Exodus of Venus in 2016, and it was sort of... I was still uh, I was um, still coming through that period um, in what all had happened, and I was still just stunned and numb, and I was out taking a lot of medication for mental health. And I wrote very clear, but I remember just feeling like I was under the ocean the whole time. And so that's that record, and I love that record for that moment. But then I started to sort of really come back to life. You know, I got off all that stuff. I got healthier. I got rid of people around me that weren't healthy for me. And I just started grooving back and writing songs in a, in a way that I hadn't in a long time. Like a, in the way that I had started, from a new place of innocence, but a little more you know, world, a little more traveled. Mm -hmm. um, so Where did I, you record it? Uh, out in San Diego mm -hmm. uh, with Butch Walker, an incredible, Amazing. yes, incredible artist and producer. And got he a, has his own rock opera. Oh, yeah. That he's just written. He's insane. He is, fa he, he produces like Weezer and Fall Out Boy and Avril Lavigne and me. Like, <laughs> isn't that, well, I mean, that's a talented man. That's Tally Mass, that's Butch Walker, but I just got, got songs piled up and, and went out there and I got to take my band, Gravy, mm -hmm. um, which I look forward to playing this stage with them again. I have before um, uh, Steve Durst, Andrew Leahy, and Herschel Van Dyke, and they played on the record. And we just had an amazing, it, it was all, it was all like a, a kid being at Disney World. Everything was falling into place, everything was beautiful, everything was easy, and it's the first time it ever felt like that. I'm so happy for you. The product speaks for itself. Everyone, make sure to go check out Aftermath. And will you send us out with a few more tunes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. One um, more time for Elizabeth Cook, everybody. Thank you so much. You're the best. Thank you, guys. I hope you're enjoying yourself this evening. I know the weather outside is frightful. So y'all please be careful. Go slow as hell on the way home. Friends. 
sink and brush my hair and pull my drink. And I can't decide who I'm poisoning me when I look in the mirror. Who am I gonna see these days? On one long night, and I hear my mother calling out my name. People talking about. I'm sipping on your daddy's sweet vermouth So it's easy for me to tell you the truth I bear this soul, I bear this pain Least thing is hurt, no it ain't in vain So don't come selling crazy, we stopped up here Don't forget your souvenir These days, I want Talking about anybody but you. Cause when the tears roll, they flower my tongue, and when they're smoking, warms my lungs. If you think I can't take the heat, they don't sell crack on Cleveland Street. These days, I'm one long night. I hear my mother calling. Soon I will rest in Orion's arms Where I can't hear your false alarms I sing with sirens of the sea A million miles from purgatory Maybe in the morning I'll get some rest Take another stranger's head to my chest These days I want I'll leave y'all with one more. I wrote this as an answer song to a John Prine song called Jesus the Missing Years. And it's all about what Jesus was doing when he goes off the grid in the Bible between the ages of 12 and 23. And nobody really knows what Jesus is doing. And so John Prine just makes a bunch of shit up. Like, oh, he went to Italy and he had pork chops with his girlfriend, joined a rock band, he went to the movies and all this cool stuff. And um, I wanted to write an, an like a parallel song about what Jesus's mother Mary was doing during that time because I don't feel like she gets a lot of airtime in the Bible considering her role. <clears throat> so this is my song called Mary the Submissing Years. It was hot, a hundred in the shade. 
when Mary got a note from this guy named Gabe. She don't remember getting pregnant, but she did. And by all accounts, she turned out one heck of a kid. But walking home from church one day, he just up and disappeared. Maybe he went to find Santa, or maybe he went to get beer. He was just 12 years old, this miracle she carried. It was all so confusing, she wasn't even married. So she fled south to Elizabeth, her eldest cousin, who despite her old age also had one in the other. And in a duplex with a busted cement gnome, well, Chattanooga was as good as home. That's in Tennessee. There's Barbie lovers and firecrackers and train trackers and Coca-Cola makers and insurance takers and a lot of hot preachers. Sarah bought some brownies, Sean and Bob Rose. They almost booked a beach trip, but they didn't have a way. They bang business in daylight for whoever might stop by. But they didn't get a lot of colors at the corner of do or die. Well, sweet tea was flowing and so were the tears as Mary lived out her submissive years. Not really free and sure not a boss. Just mostly lonely and mostly lost. Wherever Jesus was and whatever God had in mind, she hoped her boy was out there somewhere having a good time. Because chance just seems to fall out of the sky. And that's if you're lucky and the weather is dry. Lots of letters from Mama came full of worry and I told you. She curled up on the couch and watched Still Magnolia's. She baked a cake and baked a ham. She opened an account on Instagram, because that's what she did back then. Now, Mary was a good old gal. She didn't deserve this shit. She wrote her lines out one at a time, and she didn't complain one bit. She saw Sinead cover Loretta on Saturday Night Live like every good virgin does. But she spent most her time just sitting around and wondering where in the hell Jesus was. Sarah bought some brownies Sean and Bob Rose They almost booked a beach trip but they didn't have a way they bang biscuits at daylight for whoever might stop by. But they didn't get a lot of colors at the corner of Doodah. Well, time went by like molasses. So she signed up for some classes. Ah, oh, shit. I'm forgetting the words. I got it though, don't worry, you're fine. <laughs> Time went by like molasses. She signed up for some classes. Okay, 
but it seemed there were no real answers. Just a lot of fast food and raunchy dancers. And things everywhere were the worst kind of wild. She thought, oh my God, they're coming for my child. With bumpers and thumpers and guns a-blazing. Oh, Jesus was in for some gnarly hazing. Frat boy hazing, that is the worst kind. She thought, oh my God, what have I done? He's a bottle of milk and all the love inside him is mine. They're going to kill my baby. They don't like him none. So she cut off all her hair. She thought she might could get there if they would just mistake her for a man. It looked kind of mod. It probably wouldn't please God, but she had to have some kind of plan. Turns out there are no fish at the end of a lightning rod. And the worst thing you can grow up to be is the Son of God. I'm not sure there's anything anybody can do when people will kill you even when there's nothing wrong with you. So come and gather around me, friends. All my contemporary peers. And I'll tell y'all all the story of Mary. The submissing years. Thank you so much. <laughs> and that's a wrap. You can keep up with Elizabeth on her socials at Elizabeth Cook for Sheriff and make sure to give her fantastic new album, Aftermath, a listen. And to keep up with me, my music, and my touring calendar, you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at I am Maggie Rose. In fact, this week I'm releasing a brand new song called Saint from my forthcoming album, Have a Seat, on Friday, April 30th. So make sure to check that out along with my latest singles, Do It and What Are We Fighting For? You can find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash I am Maggie Rose, where you can get exclusive Salute Songbird content along with new music, live stream concerts, and more. You've been listening to Salute the Songbird on Osiris Media. The executive producers are Kirsten Cluthy and Brad Stratton from Osiris Media and Austin Marshall. And the show is edited and mixed by Brad Stratton. Original music by Maggie Rose. Please subscribe to Salute the Songbird on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. And if you like the show, recommend it to a friend or leave us a review so that others can join the conversation. Thanks for listening to this very special episode of Salute the Songbird. Now go fly high. Osiris.